Coming up on this week's show, how to mine bitcoins on your Commodore 64. The official PlayStation magazine says goodbye. And we chat to one of the best indie retro gaming studios, Bitbeam Cannon. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our amazing mates at Bitmap Books. Now, you need to check out the unofficial SNES Pixel book. If you're a fan of the Super Nintendo, this lavish 272-page volume celebrates the golden age of 16-bit gaming on Nintendo's ultra-popular home console. So check that out and lots more on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 274, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And great to have you joining us for our weekly update on everything that's been happening in the world of retro gaming and technology over the last seven days. Of course, with a healthy dose of nostalgia sprinkled on for good luck and bringing you a special guest on the show as well. Now this week, I'm actually really excited about the guest that you've got this week because I've been keeping an eye on this project that is kind of like a Streets of Rage clone that's coming out for the Amiga. Now this is by Bitbeam Cannon, who I know you, Ravi, and Joe, you actually did this interview together last week. Yeah, we did this one last week. Um, they, they Unfortunately, they were asking for Dan and Ravi and they, they got me because Dan was busy working. <laughs> so I, I apologise. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, you got you got the third one. <laughs> the, the booby prize. The booby prize. Uh, but yeah, this was really cool. We spoke to uh, Mike and Corey from Bitbeam Cannon um, about one of their upcoming games called Metro Siege, which is like a real Final Fight Streets of Rage inspired 16-bit game. But what's really awesome about it is if they've made it and it runs on Amiga. And, you know, just at that glance, for me, I'm not an Amiga guy, but looking at it straight away, it just looks like one of the most beautiful Amiga games ever. You know, Ravi got really nerdy with them at one point, and I was like, I don't even know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, talking about all the projects and stuff like that was really awesome that they've got coming up. It was great having Joe on board, actually, because Joe's got that, like, Sega knowledge and pixels. Yeah. And, and these guys were really into the consoles as well as like the Amiga, and they wanted to bring this kind of console feel. And, you know, they're, they're pretty much pixel experts. They do this mm. uh, series called Retro Pixology, where they go looking through all the old games of the pixels. They're also uh, doing one called Demon Claw as well, and uh, another game called Cyberjack. And these games are just, oh, my God, they're so impressive. Like I said to them, if we had a time machine and went back into the past, you guys would be... <laughs> hit game makers you know i still think they are in today's uh, world but it's just amazing seeing this game like the amiga man it didn't have the best fighting titles did it it always got the kind of weaker ports and uh, the rushed rushed titles there were some good like little standout cult things but standing up against something like the mega drive and the huge titles on there you know it it did suffer with one button joystick and stuff like that. <laughs> what, what I think was really interesting as well is like what you just touched on there was we were talking about how they, they the Amiga got some ports of like Street Fighter 2 and stuff like that, but you found they were made by one guy who got six weeks to make it and he'd have to build it from like the ground up. Yeah, had you know? none of the original assets. Yeah, so. yeah, with like Final Fight and stuff like that. But they were saying this is what happens when you get like two guys who have just you know doing this for fun on the side you know as well as their other game development job and stuff like that 
this is what happens when you spend a couple of years on it and actually how good you can get this get these games to look kind of thing yeah with so, yeah, good really artists cool. and all mm. the kind of tips and tricks so it's a really really interesting interview this week you know, actually, that is one of my favourite things about doing this show when we get to um, give a bit of coverage and also talk to as well these um, indie game studios who are doing the most mind-blowing things on retro systems. And we cover them all the time, you know. Like you said, Ravi, the fact that these guys are doing things that we previously didn't think these systems were capable of back in their heyday. I mean, they really have figured out the hardware and how to just make it sing, haven't they? Yeah, totally. You're going to love this one, Dad. Well, it's good just to kick back and listen to it as well. So looking forward to this one. Michael and Corey from Bitbeam Cannon coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now. Now, actually, speaking of community, I mean, at the moment here in the UK, obviously, you know, first week of May, I know things are different around the world right now, but here what they're calling, you know, non-essential retail has been open for a couple of weeks now. <laughs> you know, to us, I think retro gaming shopping is pretty essential anyway. But I mean, you guys have actually been out and about shopping in retro gaming stores again, which just sounds like heaven. Oh, God, yeah. Today, I, you know, I felt like a human again, <laughs> being able to, <laughs> like, look through the stuff. I went to a Parallel Universe in Nottingham, and they, they had to, they'd cleaned up during the whole setup, so they had, like, loads of rows of games and stuff. It was really nice. They were, but, you know, they had loads of bargains as well, and this is an independent retro video game store and I, I i got a mini disc player two mini disc players and a huge collection of mini discs so i'm going through them at the moment listening to some banging tunes from the 2000s and from danny minogue and emma bunton yeah yeah and uh there's also loads of games there as well and it's, it's just great to be actually you know not trawling ebay but going out and looking and kind of getting some really good bargains and supporting these places yeah man absolutely i went to i mentioned it on the on the after hours i forgot the name of our own show then <laughs> i mentioned it on the after hours show this week i went to leicester with my wife last week the first time we've literally been out in over a year into any sort of town center and i went to super game shack which is like a relatively new retro game shop in leicester i think it only opened about six months ago during the lockdown and that was a really, really, really beautiful shop. I was only in there for about 10, 20, about 10 minutes. I could have easily spent about an hour in there kind of picking through all these games, but I picked up a couple of Sega Saturn games that she did me an awesome deal on. And then this weekend just gone, I had a day free, which very rarely happens now. I have a child. And my wife literally says, you know, go go do whatever you want. So I drove to Derby and I went to, I think it's called Mobile Game Exchange, which is like a retro shop, but sells like, you know, kind of like one of these game shops. It sells like modern games, retro games, like laptops, you know, a bit like CEX. Um, and they have a really nice big retro section. And I bought more, more Sega Saturn games, <laughs> which, you know, they didn't have to do me a deal on at all. I didn't even ask because of, they were so, so cheap for what they were. You know, I don't know if people are just trying to get them off the shelves and stuff like that, you know, because of times have been hard and they've been closed and stuff. But yeah, it was really, really, really nice to get out and and like like Ravi says and like you say, Dan, support the community rather than trolling through eBay and stuff like that. And it makes you feel normal, doesn't it? It's like yeah, no, a normal kind of activity. Mm, yeah, definitely. Something I've missed this last kind of like year and a half. But we did get a little message actually tying into this from um, Richard on our Facebook page. And he said it would be nice if we can do regular shout outs to retro gaming shops in the UK. Because, you know, there are not that many around anymore. And a lot of them were struggling even before the pandemic. So it'd be good to give them a nice little shout out. So what we've been doing, actually, you put a post on our Facebook page and on Twitter as well. And a few people have already got in touch saying that, you know, there's this great little retro gaming shop 
it's only run by a couple of people. They're not very good at, you know, they haven't got a website. They're not very good at social media. So they're a bit unheard of. But maybe you've got a store that you go to that you think deserves a little bit of love. Now, this is obviously the time when these businesses need all the help that they can get. So if you've got a local retro gaming shop anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world, you, yeah. Yeah, can be, obviously, you know, we're a global podcast. Let us know about them and why they're so good. You can just uh, leave a comment on our Facebook or Twitter. We are Retro Hour UK on Twitter or just search for the Retro Hour podcast. Or if it's a bit longer, you can email us show at theretrohour.com and I think it would be nice if we can give a bit of love to these retailers have obviously had a really hard time of it over the last year and uh, really need our help because this is a wicked suggestion like you know each week we can kind of feature a local retro game store and give them a shout and you know hopefully they'll get some more custom because we want these independent stores to kind of last and you know uh, we want them to keep going yeah, there's nothing better than going in and actually seeing the systems and the games in person, is there, you know, compared to being on the screen. So, yeah, do get in touch if you've got a local retro gaming store that you think deserves a little bit of love, and we will hopefully give them a mention very soon. Now, before we get into the news this week, we just want to give a big thank you to this week's sponsor, our amazing friends at Curve. Now, I know, Ravi, you've been out shopping. I imagine Curve's got a lot of hammering today while you've been in town. <laughs> yeah, it has. I've, I've, been, I've been like, oh, I'm going to get a coffee, I'm going to get this, and... Uh, uh, it's absolutely fantastic, Curvis. Um, it stores all your loyalty cards as well. So when I was going in these places, I, I was getting the loyalty, but I was also getting 1% cash back off um, selected retailers. So you can select like your, your best retailers, uh, the ones that you regularly go to, and you can get cash back on your purchases. So even when you're buying, you're getting a little bit back. And uh, it's got no monthly fees as well, Curve Blue. So it's basically like a kind of MasterCard or a Visa and an app. And yeah, I, I just absolutely love it. It's It comes with loads of extra features as well. It's my number one card at the moment. It's all I use. Well, the idea behind Curve is, you know, they want to simplify your life because we've all had this, you know, how many times have you gone into, you know, Boots, for example, you know, have you got your Advantage card? You're like, oh yeah, I've got one, but it, you know, it's at home, it's in a drawer or it's in my other wallet or, you know, you're going out in the summer, you haven't got a coat with you, you don't want to put a big wallet in your pocket. Curve is all about simplifying your life and making your daily finances more efficient. So you can have your MasterCard, your visas all on one card and app and your loyalty cards boots tesco lots more as well so that means your finances are all in one place and you can track your entire wallet spending in one app and they've even got this great little feature called um go back in time haven't they yeah go back in time's great uh we were saying you know joe likes to make all of these purchases and and hide it from the wife <laughs> the, the go back in time feature is absolutely awesome for that because you can go back 90 days and you can uh move payments from one card to another. So kind of switch payments. Yeah, which is absolutely awesome. And also they give you purchase protection up to 100,000 euros as well. We want you to give Curve a try. And also we want to give you some free money. It doesn't get better than that. So new users who use our code will get five pounds of Curve cash after your first purchase. And the Curve Blue card has got no monthly fees, but still will boost all your cards as well. So you can sign up right now and, of course, help out the Retro Hour podcast by supporting our sponsors. Head to curve.com slash retro. That's curve.com slash retro. And a big thank you to Curve for supporting our podcast. Now, this was some news that a few people have been in touch with over the last week. Um, Big shout out to Keith. Keith's amazing in our Discord, isn't he? He gives us so many news stories for the show. Oh, yeah. And I've actually made a new news stories channel. 
so you right. guys can actually share some because it usually goes in general chat. So we're getting a bit more organised on the Discord front. Yeah, so I mean, if you do spot any retro gaming stories, you want to let us know about, you know, Discord's a really good place to do it. And a thank you to Keith for uh, pointing this one out. And this is that the official PlayStation magazine here in the UK that Future Publishing have published for 25 years now is uh, now no more. I mean, they're not actually discontinuing it, but it's becoming a multi-platform magazine called Play Magazine because, you know, Sony are no longer advocating this as an official magazine. So... That is kind of sad, actually, because it does mean, I didn't realise this, that, you know, looking at this article here on Eurogamer, there are now no official magazines left in the UK. I was going to say, because official Nintendo magazine ended like five, six years ago in 2015. Yeah. And then official Xbox magazine ended last year, which I think we mentioned. Um, Yeah, March last year. So that's it. A PlayStation, official PlayStation gone now as well, but... It is good that they're carrying on and it's the same editors, it's the same team. They're not having like a restructure or anything like that, are they? It's all the same guys, but like you say, they're going multi-platform. So there's a little bit of a good news story there. And this Um, is the one that was running from like 95 that had the the demo demo discs discs back on it. The legendary demo discs. The legendary demo discs. Yeah, these guys. Yeah, it's the same magazine, which, you know, I think we've mentioned before because we've been sponsored by them a couple of times, haven't we, over the years? Um, so we've you know spoke about it before with the demo discs and stuff, but yeah, it, it feels like a real end of an era kind of thing. You know, it's nice. There's good news there that you know nobody's not out of a job or anything like that. They're going to carry on and stuff. I think that side of it's nice, but like you say, that that's it. No official magazines, no official you know sponsored game magazines in the UK anymore. It is crazy though because I mean you think of those early days of the PlayStation magazine, and you know 1995 it came out, and I remember my brother getting a PS1 that Christmas, Christmas 95, and being like, you know, that was such a hot new system. But obviously, the games were quite pricey, especially mm. when you were a kid. So having these magazines, you know, your dad had gone to WH Smith or something, you're begging for one of these. And then those demo discs, they keep you going for months. I mean, I'm looking here at issue one. There was eight demos on the CD that came on the front of the magazine. Yeah, man. My cousin, I didn't used to buy the magazine, you know, naughty. Uh, my cousin, who's probably about 20 years older than me, um so he was like in his mid-20s at this point he i remember once and it was like it was like christmas came early because you know when you're that age you know you get like a game for christmas and a game for your birthday and i remember he gave me a stack of about 50 official playstation magazine demos like you know like in like 98 or something like that like literally one were one to number 50 and are I you still playing them today, are you? Yeah, I don't know where they are. But, you know, I don't have them, unfortunately, which is annoying because I do have the majority of my collection from when I was a child. But yeah, it was like Christmas come early. Like you say, like the minimum, like seven or eight games on them. You know, usually like 10, 15 games. I used to be always really disappointed when it was just a trailer for the game, though. You know, and you couldn't actually play the first level or anything like that. But yeah, man, proper end of an era. And you know, back then they were actually selling so many. Apparently back in the, the peak of this magazine, they were selling... Half a million copies a month. That was beating the likes of FHM oh, wow. back in the day. It's it's mad because, you know, there's so many PlayStation systems, like more than five. Mm. You know, you've got the Vita and the PSP and stuff like that. They, they, there's lots to talk about, but it just seems to be this this license fee that they, they can't kind of keep up. So they turn into multi-format, but I guess it would it would also be affected by, you know, news agents being closed um stuff like that yeah i was gonna, yeah. I was gonna l- say l- looking at this article it's like uh apparently future publishing have said that it looks like they're just not going to pay 
Sony to use the official tagline anymore. So it's not so much Sony pulling the plug, okay. it's the other way around. The fact that um, they've said, you know, video game retail, that's been closed for a year. That's impacted the sales figures of their magazines. And I guess just, you know, the cost of having that official logo stamped on the front just probably wasn't, you know, viable anymore, I guess. Maybe being like multi-format, you know, they might they might start getting some of the Xbox users and uh, a Switch, you know, they could probably start covering that as well. It probably frees them up a bit more to, to cover more it, items. It could, it could, like you say, yeah, it could like rise on the ashes for them, you know, it could, they could get more sales off the back of it because of, you know, there's gaps in the market with Nintendo and, and Xbox and stuff like that. So it could work out for them like really nicely, to be honest. So, you know, it'd be great if they brought back some sort of demo. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> some crazy demo that's got a bit a of de- everything A demo Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah, that'd be incredible. <laughs> and, you know, us guys having like, you know, retro running through our veins. We love a good paper magazine. I mean, Ravi actually edits a paper magazine, you know, so uh, we're, yes. we're big advocates of a, a paper mag. So rest in peace, official PlayStation magazine and uh, long live play magazine. Um, looking forward to seeing what they do with that. Now, <laughs> it's just been crazy recently. How many retro systems are currently being used as Bitcoin miners? Now, we did cover that story about the Game Boy being used to mine Bitcoins last month. And uh, Destroy007 on our Discord sent this link over here on uh, PC Gamer. This is a video by um, someone who's on our show recently, 8-Bit Show and Tell. And this is a video showing... Bitcoin mining on the Commodore 64. Yeah, this one actually seems like it's going to be quicker than bit mining on the Game Boy. But <laughs> Apparently it is a bit quicker. Yeah, not too much, but it is it a bit. It would still take like a trillion years or something. <laughs> it would cost $1.1 quadrillion in energy to get one Bitcoin. Maybe that's what they'll be worth in the future. <laughs> oh, and it would take 50 trillion years. You are right. Yeah, 50 trillion years to do it as well. Wow. <laughs> It's it's interesting to see these kind of like you know it's it's obviously it's not it's not useful in any way but it's kind of fun. <laughs> what do you mean they've still got it set up, Ravi? <laughs> <laughs> His electricity bill is going up every year, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's not useful in any way. But it's it's kind of a mad little proof of concept, isn't it? And it's just like look what we can do with our our low end CPUs <laughs> compared to the monsters that you get today. Do you remember there's an episode of Red Dwarf when I think that the the electricity company are chasing, I think it's Lister, um, you know, three million years into deep space with an electric bill because um, apparently only only him and the electric company actually have any money left in the world because he left his, uh, his, his bathroom light on for three million years. <laughs> I've not seen that one. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of this, yeah. <laughs> it would be some dude in space like... I've, I've mined my final coin on my C64. Of this ancient technology, of this ancient coin. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, we don't want to get too much into the uh, the ins and outs of Bitcoin mining and hashes and all that kind of thing, but I'll link up the video and the article here on Actually PC Gamer um, that Robin's done. It's really interesting. Again, I mean, you can actually see it working and how it's kind of figuring out the hashes and stuff like that. Like you said, Ravi, I mean, it, it's just a bit of fun, really. You're not going to get rich off doing this. I do love some of the comments in here too as well on this article people saying right that's it going to be a global shortage of commodore 64s now people are using it for mining (laughs) i can't imagine i can imagine like even if they got every single you know c64 left in the world you know which probably isn't that many i would imagine it's in the thousands i imagine and got them all 32 million of them back in the day 32 million of them okay so let's say half of them survived you know, you, we've, we've still got 16 million of them. I'm still sure it'd probably still take a good couple of million 
if not truly any of you, still with a minor coin on all of them running at once. So imagine an <laughs> island with them all side by side, yeah. whirring away. <laughs> Ravi just there controlling them all, mine, <laughs> tending to them like a garden. <laughs> Castaway style. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I do love seeing stuff like this. And the 64, I mean, we mentioned, obviously, uh, recently Christy and Perry Fractic, you know, contacting the space station with them as well. It's, it's awesome, you know, the kind of things people are doing with that platform at the moment, I think. Maybe you have got a few spare Bitcoins kicking around and you've got a spare... Uh, few grand to spend on this. The Queen, Queen Elizabeth II's 24 karat gold Nintendo Wii is up for sale if you've got a spare £300,000 kicking around. This, you know, I feel like that's clickbait because of, I don't know the full story behind it. I think Ravi knows a little bit more about it, but she never actually accepted the uh, the Wii, did she? So it was never actually hers, but it was built for her, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, so, so THQ. Yeah built a, a solid gold 24 karat Wii console. Now, um, this console, it, it's, it's been around for quite a few years, so mm. I think this is a drumming up of uh, marketing for it to kind of get a higher value out of it. And uh, there's a few statements here saying, some experts have said it could fetch up to a million dollars. But what yeah, experts? it's been <laughs> so, sold for 300,000 by it now on ebay and uh we looked into it on my stream actually on uh, the retro hours twitch mm. and you know being gold obviously it's got a lot of scratches on it because gold yeah. is uh, quite soft but um it seems that the actual console unit is is solid gold but the controller uh, it's, it's it's got a bit of paint scraping off it and it just looks like it's a sprayed normal controller uh, you know, a normal wee one. Why? Yeah, one, I mean, right? it isn't actually solid gold. It's it's gold laden, so yeah, plated, plated. Yeah, so it's just yeah. you know gold on there. So maybe you know the gold is coming off on the and, Wii controller. And, and then I think the most offensive thing about it is they sent an NTSC one. No wonder she didn't accept it. Like she wouldn't have been able to use any games if you were sending a Wii to the Queen. You need to send a power. She was offended. Yeah. So this won't work on my television. I will have to get all my games on import. So what's interesting about it is, you know, obviously it didn't sell. Uh, They didn't. Well, they were never selling it. Her. So she declined to accept it. You know, whenever it might have been. I mean, it came with the game, big family games. I'm assuming in the heyday of the Wii, like 2008. It ended up in the co- a collector's hands called Don- Donny Fillerup. Now, I want to know is how he got a hold of that. Like, I'm sure I read something about it the other day about how, you know, he was friends with somebody who worked at THQ or something like that. Oh, yeah, we were doing some sneaky little looks at, on his eBay account. And it seems oh, yeah. like he's he's into buying these prototypes and stuff. So recently he bought... Uh, a Nintendo GameCube Fighters prototype and stuff. So oh, okay. I, I, I think he's basically purchased this and he's gone around talking to lots of people and then lots of lots of people have picked it up and gone, the Queen's Wii. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, like, it's a good headline, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Like you say, but, you know, it's 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 drumming up, you know, the, uh, the hype and stuff like that. But what really makes me laugh is like, you know, the statement of, you know, $1 million is, of course, the ultimate dream, but I'm, I must be a little little bit reasonable which is why he's put it for 300,000 but a good friend of mine who works at Nintendo told me I should sell it for a price so high that it shouldn't it would never sell he advised I should start with 500,000 dollars 
well, that just doesn't make sense. You should sell for a price that would so high it would never find a buyer. Like it would never sell. Well, good like, luck to him. Like that's me turning around going, I want to sell my iPhone X because I'm getting a new one. Hmm, I want to. I want to list it for a price it would never sell for a million dollars. Although I Joe, although, although if, if if your missus says to you, Joe, you know you need to sell all your games off, you could just do that trick. I guess that might work. Yeah, and just be like, nobody's buying it. I don't know why. And yeah. then she puts it in the paper for fifty pounds. <laughs> I, I think if he finds a buyer, the buyer needs to be a fan of NTSC Wee's. The royal family. A royalist. <laughs> and gold. <laughs> and big family games as well. <laughs> it is, in, I mean, I wonder how it got out there, but I, I'm reading about, you know, THQ, um, who actually went bankrupt in 2013. This is why. <laughs> yeah, well, well, they had liabilities of $250 million, so maybe that was just kind of, you know, clearing out the offices and stuff, and that was in there to try and raise a bit of money, I imagine. That's probably how it got out there, but... Yeah, like you said, very cool headline, I think. Um, but it wasn't wasn't accepted by Buckingham Palace. Obviously, means the Queen is not that into her video games, I'd imagine, unfortunately. That's a shame. <laughs> well, now we're talking about things opening up again. Um, let's give a big shout out to you something. If you're near Milton Keynes, this looks incredible. A place called the Pixel Bunker that's going to be opening this summer. Yeah, so, you know, um, kind of there's, there's been a lot of arcades and they've actually been able to work and 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 go with covid because you know they've been able to put safety precautions in there have have lots of cleaning regimes and stuff and uh this this looks pretty cool they've said they've got a collection of uh over 200 dedicated arcade cabinets that are coming and uh 150 boards uh, so that means that they've got over 350 games to choose from so they're gonna like rotate uh and have a, a new machine every single week, which is is pretty cool. And it's based in Milton Keynes, so it's, it's quite near um, Bletchley Park as well, which, uh, you know, was a, a centre of technology and where they had the Enigma machine. So I, th- I think it's cool to see these places open up, and uh, it has close to 100 cabinets free to play for people inside the venue. That's what I love about places like this. I mean, Arcade Cup's similar as well, isn't it? You pay on the door, you go in. Like this one here, you get three hours to game as much as you want. Every game inside set on free to play. You don't need to, you know, go and get change from coin machines and spend a fortune in there as well. You know, t- to me, that not only makes the gaming experience more fun, but also it makes you try out games that you probably wouldn't p- play if you had to pay for them. Yeah, totally. And I, I just think it's good to see these things kind of opening up and, uh, yeah, get down there and, and check it out if you can. The older classics, Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, Outrun, Track and Fill, or Outrun on the original arcade cabinet. How incredible is that to play? Street Fighter 2, Bubble Bobble, loads of games from the 80s, 90s and 2000s. I just think, you know, in recent years, it does seem like the arcade experience is making a big comeback. And, you know, when you go to them, it just makes you realise how much you miss them. Yeah, totally. Like, I miss I, I, the, like, the, I can't even think of it, the atmosphere of just like all the 8-bit and 16-bit noises amongst all the like just the noise of you know people talking and chatting and having fun and stuff like that that real kind of like something we've not experienced like an you know that ambient kind of noise of being in a town center or something we've just you know being in an arcade and hearing that is like i really miss that at the moment and me screaming when you beat me on the <laughs> or when or you beat me and you go yes <laughs> i was trying to be nice they're, they're, they're much nicer than back in the days where you were you know, hair gel, cigarettes, and you were scared of getting beaten up. 
<laughs> but you know, actually, that smell is very nostalgic. When you walk in, that obviously there isn't the you know stale cigarette smell anymore. But you do get that. It's a kind of like an ozone kind of smell. All the CRTs, you know, and the warm cabinets and the warm electronics when you walk in. There is a definite distinctive smell to an arcade. I think. Oh yeah, definitely. Usually burning dust, you know, on the on the motherboards yeah. and stuff. <laughs> And uh, usually beer as well these days, now that we're all a bit older. Yeah, so, definitely. Um, and this yeah, place is uh, going to have a lot of the original ones as well. You know, it's it's not going to be this LCD kind of pick, picky oh, yeah, game yeah. thing, you know. And it's opening on uh, 4th of June. Yeah, so the Pixel Bunker in Milton Keynes, you know, only about half an hour drive from London as well. So um, if you're in the area, definitely worth a look in. Now, before we get into our chat this week with the crew from Bitbeam Cannon, let's give a big thank you to another supporter of the Retro Hour podcast, and this is our amazing friends at ExpressVPN. Now, things have changed quite a lot on the internet over the last few decades. You know, we used to have privacy online, and actually, I've been watching a really good documentary all about the BBS scene, the bulletin board scene called um, Back to the BBS by Al's Geek Lab, four-part series, really good. And actually on there, he's talking to a lot of you know people that are like under 20 that are into bulletin boards because they're just sick of their data being mined and sold and everything getting aggregated and collected and you know put into your public record when you're online. You know That's the thing at the moment, when you go on the internet, everything you do, everything that you browse, searched for, watched and tweeted is being recorded all the time. But obviously, you know, we're nostalgic guys. We remember an era when everyone was online back in the day and this didn't happen. Everyone wasn't a public figure, which is why if you want to get your privacy back to keep your data private when you go online, check out ExpressVPN. And you've always been, I mean, you're probably the biggest advocate of privacy that I know, Ravi. Yeah, yeah, I, I love it. And I, I love ExpressVPN as well. Like, it's really easy to use. Like, you can have it on your router, on your laptop, phone, and on your smart TV as well. So it's really easy just to select. I actually have it on my PC and I have it to automatically start up. So as soon as I start my PC, I don't even know that I'm connected. But when I am connected to it, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and uh, basically means my IP address is masked because there's lots of people then sharing that same IP address and uh, your activity can't be tracked. Um, Stuff like advertisers, they can't build these advertising profiles about you. And, uh, you know, it's really, really good for kind of um, protecting yourself from data brokers and you know, businesses that want to go out there and sell your data as well. Yeah, so if you want to keep your data private, have a look at ExpressVPN. And like you said, then it's so easy to set up as well. And it can work on all your devices, your phone, your laptop, your smart TV even as well. All you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if you believe your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market and use our exclusive offer to get three months for free. So that is expressvpn.com slash retro, expressvpn.com slash retro. Get your three months free and of course, support the Retro Hour podcast. And can we just take a moment to give a big thank you to our amazing patrons, the lifeblood of this show, the people who allow us to bring you the Retro Hour podcast every single Friday, bring you these amazing guests that we have every single week. I can't believe that we've had 274 episodes. Uh, I think around 270 of them with a special guest as well. We've had some of the biggest names in the industry. And it's thanks to you guys, our patrons, that we can keep doing this show. And also last week, I mean, you know, for back in the, the show on Patreon, you get some rewards as well 
including our exclusive patrons-only podcast, The Retro Hour After Hours. Well, last week, we took a little trip back to the year 2000 as well. That was fun, wasn't it? Going back to the the start of the last decade. Yeah, man, we were talking about PlayStation 2 um, and one of Ravi's favourite subjects, everything being silver in the year 2000. <laughs> everything Silver and chrome. Chrome finish to everything. <laughs> and what I also enjoyed was we got our opinions on the new Mortal Kombat film as well. We discussed that as well, which was cool. It is good, though, because the After Hours podcast can often be longer than the main podcast. Yeah, sometimes it ends up being about two hours long, and <laughs> and we just like we just we just get into it. Like you know, with, with the main podcast, we always try to make sure you know it's you know it's meant to be the retro hours. So it's usually about an hour and a half long, so we're very like conscious of it. But yeah, on, on the after hours, we just end up just hanging out, don't we? And um, mm. speaking of hangouts, um, we also have our Google Hangouts about once a month as well, don't we? Yeah, so we're going to be doing another one of those this weekend on uh, Sunday evening at 7pm. Uh, if you guys are around then, Sunday evening. Yeah, man. Um, so we, we love doing this as well. Every month, start of the month, we all get together on um, Google Meets and we just have a chat about all things retro video game, And generally the conversation, you know, we talk about movies and all sorts of stuff as well. Really just a good excuse to get together with a few mates. It kind of feels a bit like a virtual kind of users group doesn't it, when we all get together on uh, on our patrons' hangout. So it will be amazing to see you there this weekend on Sunday evening. Check out the uh, 11 episodes that we've done so far of the After Hours podcast. You get the regular podcast often early, ad-free as well. But really, you're just showing your support for the Retro Hour and making sure that we can continue to bring it to you each and every week. And of course, for supporting the show on Patreon, you will get a mention in the most exclusive high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And a big thank you this week to our latest patrons, Ollie Holmes, Max Ward, Paul Bullard, Andrew S, and Gary Audley, who all made donations into our Patreon. We massively appreciate that. Thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find the link on our website at theretrohour.com. Right next, we are going to be chatting to Michael and Corey of one of the best independent game studios making retro arcade and console kind of games inspired by the golden age of 8 and 16-bit video games the crew from bit beam cannon and next on the retro hour podcast amiga you're listening to the retro hour and i'm here with michael and Corey from bit beam cannon how are you doing guys doing great doing great. how are you doing well we will start with a question, and I'm going to ask it to Michael first. What was your first video game experience? Wow, that goes way back. I'm a, I'm pretty old, so we're talking uh, arcades, and um, I think my strongest first memory, direct memory, was Pac-Man, but there was definitely some uh, Space Invaders, and I maybe even saw Pong. The first home console at some point, my parents got an Atari 2600. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's how far back it goes. So we, I've basically grown up in a family that's had a video game system in the house starting back uh, in the early, you know, Atari days and then 8-bit Nintendo, Sega Master System, Mega Drive, Super Nintendo, all the way up through the years. And where did you grow up, Michael? I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, on okay. the uh, east side of uh, the U.S., did you say, you said there, but you grew up with the Master System and stuff. Did you see a lot of that kind of like, you know, in Rhode Island and stuff? Because I know the Master System didn't sell too well in America, no, did it? No, uh, similarly to the Amiga, it was kind of the underdog, despite being uh, visually more powerful than its competitor. Oh, interesting. And the uh, same question for you, Corey. What was your earliest gaming experience or gaming memory? Uh, well, um, 
I came into the world in the early 80s or so, so I was more of a Nintendo kid growing up. However, when I was very young, uh, I had a hand-me-down Atari 2600 console. And uh, so I, it, with like tons of the games, so, because they were, you know, at that point, they were less valuable and just kind of left over and nobody wanted them anymore. Yeah. So I'd play things like, you know, Yar's Revenge and, you know, combat and all of that stuff. Uh, got into the NES. Uh, I think it was a little bit after it came out uh, once our, our household had one. And uh, also uh, my first computer was an old, another hand-me-down uh, device. It was like an old 286 computer, uh, IBM, like a DOS computer. And I played a lot of the early, you know, old DOS games and stuff as well then. So that was that was my first experiences with games. That's cool. And uh, where did you grow up as well? Uh, I grew up in the East Tennessee area in the United States. So uh, kind of near Knoxville. So a lot of the stuff that, uh, you know, Amiga related and Master System, as Mike talks about, it, you know, you just didn't see it here, uh, to be honest yeah. with you. So, yeah. Well, which games were a huge influence on you when you were younger and like you really got engaged with their graphic style and the kind of presentation behind them? For me, that would be probably the NES games are where it really took hold. Uh, and I started being really impressed by games and their visuals, things like the Mega Man series, uh, the early Mario games, possibly... Uh, you know, Castlevania, that kind of stuff. Uh, I loved a lot of those games growing up, and uh, that, you know, led into the 16-bit territory as well, where I, you know, branched out. As I got older, I liked many different genres of games as well. So, For me, it was actually, uh, I really started developing a love for pixel art with the Commodore 64. We got that in our household for a few years before we were able to upgrade to Amiga's and there was late in the Commodore 64's life, they introduced a uh, kind of a graphic operating system. I think it was called Geos or Geo or something like that. I don't know if you guys remember that. Yeah, it, yeah. It was uh, green, wasn't it? Yeah. And it actually came with a uh, very nice pixel art package. So I started developing skills in my love for pixel art with that. And then it was a revelation when we got an Amiga and I could start using deluxe paint and eventually a program called brilliance, which was really where I gained most of my uh, pixel art experience before eventually uh, going to PC and getting a job in the industry. So how did you boys meet? Uh, yeah, we both worked in the mobile games industry uh, mm -hmm. at different companies. And uh, when we were, both in the same company in California. It was Glue Mobile. Uh, we were in the same office together. And this was a, a long time ago. I, I'd say more than a decade ago. And that's how we met each other. And, uh, you know, at that time, there was there was a whole team of uh, art team and everything there. Um, and, you know, there's only so much you can get to know people in such a certain amount of time. And we were all working on various projects. But, you know, we everyone on the art team there they had a good art culture and everybody uh got to know each other very well and you know we we kept contact over the years and eventually started uh working together on this more recent stuff and bitbeam canon you know in recent years what titles were you guys working on on mobile and like what what time period was this as well what were the uh mobiles like was it a snake or a bit a bit further developed 
Yeah, I started in the industry when phones were still fairly primitive, but we're talking very 16-bit like, uh, but only 2D at first. But then only about a year into my career, the technology was developing so incredibly fast that after about a year of doing 2D 16-bit style games, suddenly I had to learn how to do uh, 3D texture modeling and uh, uh, texture mapping uh, for a 3D game that was remarkably similar to a PlayStation 1 on, I think that was like one of the first Sony Ericsson phones or something like that. One of the first Sony phones that was quite powerful. And uh, so... I'm really bad with dates, but that's about the time. It was definitely several years before the first iPhone, if that puts it into a, you know, a time zone for people. So probably like 2005, maybe 2006. Yeah, uh, around there. But like I said, I'm terrible. But uh, <laughs> we were we were in the industry for many years, and it really it really exploded. Uh, even 2D games became remarkably high res, no color limitations like you would run into on classic 16-bit systems in Amiga. And, but uh, I, I think we both worked on, or I know I also worked mm -hmm. on games for things like the Game Boy Advance and the DS and stuff like that. Probably one of the most well-recognized games that I did quite a few sprite animations for was Thor, God of Thunder, by way forward for the, I think it's for the DS. It's really nice 2D classic pixel art, very 16-bit style action game. And uh, also one of the uh, mighty Switch Force games I did some quite a bit of sprite work on. Was there a demand for like pixel artists back then in the phone area? Because I know a lot of people kind of moved on from older platforms and doing pixels into the mobile phone like Java World. Yeah, I I had a similar time frame getting into the industry, actually, as Micah. I thought he, he might have been there some years before me. But yeah, a few years before smartphones. So yeah, during those days of the flip phones and stuff, there was a demand for pixel art. And we were some of the pixel artists that got went to that those areas for that reason, because we had practiced a lot in that area. And uh, yeah, some of the early games I worked on were you know, platformers and things for these old phones uh, before the iPhone days. And that's when things totally changed, of course. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd really call it the first renaissance for pixel artists because it really had died out and it was very difficult to uh, look for an actual career you could pay your bills with doing pixel art for decades. And then the, uh, the cell phones hit and suddenly there was this demand again for people with the ability to work with an extremely limited screen resolutions and memory just like it had been in the uh, 8 and 16-bit days. Uh, but then that technology grew so fast. Luckily, for the last, you know, five to 10 years, this sort of a second renaissance happened with pixel art where retro just became cool and fashionable. So now it's once again possible to, uh, to do well for yourself or at least uh, get work doing pixel art. So, but there, there, were, there were definitely... Uh, you know, the first big dip was after the whole 16-bit uh, thing. Once once everything went 3D, it was very hard to to uh, maintain uh, employment as a pixel artist. And then, yeah, the cell phones really changed that. And then it dipped again. And now with uh, retro being really fashionable, uh, it's a good time for pixel artists. So uh, I liked what you said there, you know, how retro has become fashionable and stuff again. So that kind of leads into Bitbeam Canon. How 
how did Bitbeam Canon kind of come to life? How did you guys decide to do that? What's the kind of the journey and the story there? Yeah, some years back, um, after we had parted ways from the mobile industry, uh, Mike contacted me and we were working together on some various, you know, art pack sort of stuff, just collaborating on, on different things. And eventually after, you know, some years of keeping in good touch and working together, we decided, you know, it'd be a good idea to make our own games. And uh, Mike had the idea for the name of Bitbeam Cannon. And uh, it kind of went from there and we sort of, you know, fleshed out the idea some. This was uh, some years back. And then, you know, eventually we we, we had to brainstorm games and try various ideas for games, you know. Uh, it took a while for it to get where it is now. So, yeah. So was it initially just you two? Are you two kind of like the founding members? Is there more people working with you or is it still just the two of you? It, it is just us, but yep. we are collaborating with uh, Alex Brown, who's an amazing programmer in the Amiga community. And we're working with uh, someone he had partnered with in the past to make the Amiga game worthy. Uh, John Securis, I think is how you say his last name. Uh, who was the uh, the pixel artist for Worthy, and it, he's done pixel artwork to help with Metro Siege, but it also turns out he's an incredible musician, and mm -hmm. he's doing the soundtrack for Metro Siege as well. So uh, uh, John Takiris, uh, he calls his basically his game studio uh, Pixel Glass, and then Alex Brown, who's the programmer again, uh, he uh, calls you know, his programming house, you could call it, um, enable software. And so we're, they're not, uh, part of Bitbeam Canon, but we're, we're collaborating with them and probably not only for Metro Siege. We, uh, we work very well with them. Uh, they have, you know, they just do amazing stuff, which we'll probably get into later when we talk more about Metro Siege, but, uh, yeah, just, you know, especially in an industry like this, when you find really talented, passionate people that you really communicate well with and really have similar visions, uh, you, <laughs> you form those relationships and you treasure them. Well, did you guys have any formal training? Because I was checking out your portfolio and uh, I love the um, fine art child's crayon Mona Lisa <laughs> that you did as well. Thanks. Yeah, for me, I got into sort of graphic design studies getting into college because back then, you know, it was, there wasn't much I could do locally to lean toward the video game industry. There wasn't a lot of digital art sort of uh, training in my area. I ended up going to a different school uh, in another state to learn more about that side of things, but it was a little more technical. I did get into some traditional art studies along with the graphic design education. However, it never, it wasn't like a, an all-encompassing sort of, uh, you know, it, what I learned getting into the industry myself, and I'm sure Mike can attest to this, is that, you know, in the game industry, you, your education is less important than what you're actually able to do. So for me, I practiced a lot of art and pixel art stuff before I ever even went to college, you know, in my, my high school years and stuff. So that was actually more the basis for what allowed me to get into the industry to begin with uh, than, than a lot of that other stuff, even though a lot of it was very valuable uh, to learn. 
Yeah, I can definitely attest to that. I'm a high school dropout. I grew up in the ghetto. The <laughs> The school system was terrible. Uh, I became very uh, disillusioned with that. So I did not pursue, even though I was being offered um, scholarships to go to like art. Uh, there's a famous where I grew up, uh, the Rhode Island School of Design. Like I was on track to probably get a scholarship for that and just didn't didn't follow through with it. But as Corey was saying, that actually your schooling is not relevant. It's the skills you develop. And long before high school, I was already uh, working hard to, to achieve, you know, pro level pixel art. Um, and, uh, and one of those things, luckily, like I just developed a workflow with good old deluxe paint and brilliance to be faster than most, which was really a thing that got my foot in the door in the industry was not just being able to do nice work, but do it really quickly under deadlines. Um, so I unfortunately, some, I was yeah. going to say I had uh, yeah, M- but... MS Paint uh, DOS. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. So is, um, is Bitbeam Canon your, both your full-time jobs or do you do other things as well? And, you know, are you inspired by any other indie retro studios like you aspire to be like? We certainly have day jobs and we do this uh, on top of that. Uh, we aspire for it to be our day jobs for sure um we want it to be more than you know just us you know maybe making a couple of games or something Uh, as many indie developers might uh, want to do uh we take this from a very professional approach i believe yeah yeah so yeah we're we're doing everything we can to simultaneously work on these two game projects and kind of build our infrastructure our contacts our social media presence um you know like we know that's uh these days every bit as important for an indie developer as making sure your game gets finished and to a high quality like i actually know people are actually Corey and i both know people that worked very hard with a pro team to make a very pro level game only to have that game kind of disappear into the ocean of other games out in the market and uh you know not see a return on your time and investment so um we're really this is something we love to do and even if it never became our day jobs it's something we would always do but we're we're definitely taking this very seriously it's it's what we love and what we want to do for a living as well yeah no i can definitely relate because we're we're the same with the podcast it's not our full-time job but you know, it's, it's something we're passionate about. So we, you know, we do it every evening like you guys do as well. So one of your shows on your YouTube channel, you mentioned social media presence stuff. There is um, one I really loved. I was watching it today is forensic P- pixology. Um, it looks really fun, you know, looking at the pixel art from the past. How did that kind of come about? Do you know, do you enjoy doing that? You know, what do you think of the technical constraints that, you know, they had back in the past? Yeah, it's it's something Corey and I love to do. Like old uh, old school pixelers, Corey and I grew up with consoles, 8 and 16-bit systems. I remember I used to rent or actually our parents used to rent games for us in the summer. Instead of just playing them, I have an older brother who was learning programming and I was, like I said, learning uh, pixel art on the C64 and then uh, Deluxe Paint on the Amiga. We'd pause the game and I'd be studying the blurry pixel art on a CRT monitor <laughs> and, uh, and talking to my brother, like, how did Capcom, how did Konami, how did Treasure get such amazing things to happen on screen on, on Mega Drive and SNES and stuff like that? And then, of course, the Amiga games like Shadow of the Beast. Um, 
And so understanding, Corey and I both love the challenges of real pixel art on real retro consoles that it's not just working in that resolution, it's color and memory constraints. And that's something we really wanted to hopefully in an entertaining way, get modern generations of aspiring pixel artists who like it only because it's kind of a cool aesthetic and like a trend. We want them to understand kind of where it comes from and what the the actual limitations were that the pixel artists that they are looking at when they see retro games, what they were really dealing with. Uh, and it's like I said, it's not just, oh, like why did they do the animation that way? Uh, you know, they should have done it with 20 frames of animation, full frame. Like a lot of younger artists, they don't understand that they were working with, what was it, Corey? Like uh, the original Super Mario Brothers run animation is like... Uh, yeah, it's like uh, three <laughs> frames or something. And, and the funny thing is, is the series sort of came about because we were, you know, we were collaborating a lot on calls and stuff anyways for Bitbeam Canon and, and otherwise. And we would just end up digressing sometimes into these kind of conversations ourselves. And we, we would just yeah. start talking, you know, Mike would want to show me something about a certain game and I would do the same. And we ended up like realizing, I think through those conversations, Hey, we should record some of this stuff and, and make something out yeah. of it, you know? And so that's, I think how the whole idea came about just between the two of us uh, from the get go. And we, we love doing that series and we haven't done one in a while, but we want to, we want to continue it for sure. Oh yeah. And then where the name came from for the, the video series, forensic pixology, when I was eventually working in the studio uh, in studios like glue mobile and game loft before that, I had uh, been talking with the art directors and when analyzing the art of other games or other potential artists like uh, that we might hire, uh, I had mentioned I have I had been studying pixel art so long just by seeing an image, I can usually tell what workflow and methodology and tools that artist had used to create the pixel art. So I said I'm like a forensic pixologist by looking at one <laughs> screen. I could see the history of how that image got to be, basically. Yeah, you've had a lot of practice. Um, yeah. <laughs> who would you say then are your favorite? pixel artists of all time and your kind of favorite pieces uh for me it's tough to say there's so much um a lot of my favorite pixel art comes from probably the 16-bit era but i have a strong love for the nes era some uh, it's it would be mostly japanese stuff to be honest with you uh, because i was that i just i fell in love with the gameplay of those games and then also the art but as far as um if i could name possibly the the best pixel art i'd ever seen some of my favorite stuff oddly enough is rpg art uh and and mike ha <laughs> well i don't want to say he doesn't like rpgs but he's more of an action no, I, I like guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah but the art side of it is why i played those games you know i loved seeing that mm -hmm. stuff it never had the best animation or anything but uh you know, a lot of the old Squaresoft titles and uh, getting I, into... I was literally thinking of the old Final yeah. Fantasy games with the static images that just kind of vibrate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they did not animate, that, but, but they there didn't was animate, so much but they were beautiful. 
Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. So I, I and the way the battles were, you could look at them for a long time, like the the images. Yeah. And so it was. That's why I liked it, you know. Uh, uh, but that kind of stuff, it's hard to um, pinpoint a single person, though. I it, it picking a favorite would be impossible. I would say. Yeah. So. Yeah. For for me, uh, it's similar. Most of my influence were Japanese. I really grew up with. Uh, you know, the arcade and the 16-bit consoles. And so that's definitely the style I gravitate toward. There were definitely some very uh, impressive Amiga games that all Amigans can name. Um, and then there's, say, that's the thing too, I'm terrible with names, but there's the artist that did uh, Flink and uh, who did really nice stuff. And oh, Hank then, uh, Nyborg. There you go. Yes, yes. yes, that definitely rings a bell. Uh, but in general, and uh, the, this isn't just butt kissing, I'm working with, uh, I'm partnered with one of my favorite pixel artists, uh, being Corey. And uh, <laughs> it's, um, no, I mean, seriously, no. wait till you see, uh, like, I just love his use of color and um, just brilliant uh, environment stuff. There's some games you can't see yet, some projects that are on the back burner until we finish up. Uh, Damon Claw and Metro Siege that 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 are kind of his babies that he is the creative spark behind that he started that I really can't wait to uh, to get on next after we finish these games. But uh, yeah, I mean, like I've I've had the pleasure of being friends with and working with some of the really great modern pixel artists uh, that came up in the industry with yep. uh, with me. So there's also uh, to throw out names. There's someone named Steve Cedar. Uh, who went by the name uh, something like Stoven? Was that what it was on the pixel art forums? I don't remember really. his handle now, but uh, yeah, yeah, something uh, like Steve that. was great. He we we met him back him. in the mobile days. Uh, some others as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. And there's a guy I, I worked with at GameLoft named Jun Choi, a uh, Korean American. Uh, amazing, amazing artist altogether. He could do very high res stuff and uh, pixel art. Just absolutely brilliant stuff. So you uh, you mentioned the games that you guys are currently working on, so Demon Claw and uh, Metro Siege. So um, one of the ones I, re- I mean, I really want to talk about both of them, but I really want to sink my teeth into Metro Siege. Um, so Ravi's wrote here, you know, why did you choose the Metro Siege? You know, it's kind of be that Streets of Rage style game. For me, it's got more of a fa- kind of like a Final Fight kind of vibe to it as well. But um, t- tell us about that choice. Tell us about the game. Metro Siege is kind of my baby. <laughs> it's uh, beat 'em ups are my favorite genre. Uh, I grew up with an older brother, like I said, and it was just two player action. We could just really have a have a blast with. So we played almost every eight and sixteen bit beat 'em up game you could imagine on any console and eventually arcade emulator that we could get our hands on, and of course going to the actual arcades. And so it had always been a dream of mine. And I grew up in a Megan and it really, really frustrated me. While there's some stunning Amiga games out there, especially on the computer side, there's, you know, uh, there's a game by Blue Bite. Uh, I think that's a German company called Settlers, which is absolutely brilliant and incredibly charming. So there, and, you know, Simon the Sorcerer and stuff like great computer style games. But when it came to real arcade style games, Unfortunately, the Amiga suffered from some really bad ports and some really subpar originals trying to sort of 
lazily copy whatever genre became popular, like Street Fighter or something. So it's, uh, and a lot of the times it was not remotely the fault of the dev team. Like, you know, one guy, the famous port of uh, Final Fight for the Amiga, that's where Metro Siege started, is I I finally uh, gave a try uh, of the uh, the Amiga version of Final Fight. And I eventually read an interview of the, the programmer, the one-man team who was tasked with making the port in like six months time of this super complex arcade game. They didn't even give him the graphics for goodness sake. He like, he had to start his task by writing his own code to rip the, um, rip the graphics out of an arcade board. And then just because he was not an artist, he, he just wrote an algorithm to just raw kind of grind all the graphics down to one single 16 color palette. And that's where it started. And then the program, he did an amazing job in that short amount of time to make a functioning port. But that's, you know, a game like that, it needs a team with a lot of love and passion and skill for doing each element of the game. <laughs> you know what I mean? You need more than one graphic artist and, and they need the time to really, and, and then you need, the programmer needs time to really optimize for that particular hardware. And as you know, so many Amiga, so many, arcade ports to Amiga suffered from Atari ST syndrome, where it yeah. was like th this tiny team was basically just making the Atari ST version and, oh, well, it shares the same main processor with the Amiga. So the Amiga is just going to inherit, for the most part, an Atari ST port, which had much weaker graphics. Yeah. I think you're totally right there because like some of the ports, um, like the Amiga got massively overshadowed by mm -hmm. other consoles as well. And yeah. Um, kind of the fighters the brawlers and the beat-em-ups you, you know yeah. you'd have t technically impressive stuff like elf mania right that would be like themed around elves and it was like uh, right. exactly. you know, <laughs> there were just a, f a few weird titles and it would always be technically impressive but not right. you know not the hit or not the mortal Kombat or the street fighter you know? right exactly and that's so so basically it brought back the memory. Like this was fairly recently. This was, I don't know. Uh, I say recently, but that's because I'm old. Maybe it was eight years ago. I don't know. <laughs> wow. but, but I thought you were going to say is, like two years ago. <laughs> yeah, no, no. But uh, the, the way that it started was I, I played Final Fight on the Amiga. Yeah. It brought back the memories of my frustration as a teenager. Like, why do they look like this? And so I, I thought, you know what? I'm going to just take my time. It's the weekend or whatever. I'm going to find some pixel-perfect screen grabs of Final Fight on the Amiga, and I'm going to prove how it could have looked, even within the Amiga uh, constraints, just starting with 16 colors. And I literally just, this is where Metro Siege came from. I just painted over a screenshot of the Final Fight Amiga game just to see how nice I could make it look, how much more arcade quality I could make it look uh you know within the the technical constraints of amiga and then years later so that just kind of i'm sure i put that out there in like uh some amiga forums or whatever but it didn't really pick up a lot of attention but then uh more like two and a half years ago now we're getting more recent uh someone uh on facebook posted a, an actual amiga publisher posted on in a facebook group an amiga facebook group uh, hey, Amigans, if you could have a brand new Amiga game made, what genre would you like to 
to make it for. And if you're an Amiga creative person, you know, programmer, artist, whatever, contact me, see if we could do something. So I responded in that thread and posted a lot of the mock-ups I had made for different games of how games could have looked on Amiga. And one of them happened to be what that final fight repaint evolved into, which was I just eventually through, you know, repainting it, I just changed it and made original characters an original HUD, original background. So eventually it didn't look anything like final fight. It looked like its own thing. Cause I like, I don't see the point if you're going to take all this time to make a game, like make it original. So, but anyway, luckily at that point, Alex and John had very recently finished Worthy, and John spotted my game mockups, my Amiga graphics, in that thread. And apparently he contacted Alex and said, hey, we should contact this Mike guy and uh, see if he wants to collaborate on a next project. So that's how we all got connected. John contacted me and said, hey, you know, we're going to be starting up a new project soon. If you could make one of these mockups you showed, which one would you rather do? And I said, well, the fight, the beat em up would be the hardest one to do, but it's also, in my opinion, the one that the Amiga is most lacking a really high quality beat em up. I mean, the, don't get me wrong, the Golden Axe port uh, was yeah. incredibly competent, uh, but even it suffered. And obviously, everyone's played Golden Axe a million times, and there are better playing versions on other systems including emulation now. So I, I felt like there's really a good opportunity to put all of the things that I wished I basically all the most fun elements of all of the beat em ups I ever played with my brother. Can we merge them all together into one game? And as you mentioned, final fight, the, the two big main influences were definitely for gameplay Streets of Rage more than Final mm -hmm. Fight. Okay. But for the aesthetic, maybe Final Fight more than Streets of Rage. But but then the other missing link was uh, it, it really shocked me this weird thing growing up as an American with this influx of amazing Japanese video games that all became really popular and really outshadowed the creativity and kind of cool factor of most Western developed games back in the day. That's not true now, but it was then. And it was just, I thought it was so funny, even back then, the Japanese game makers were copying Hollywood movies to make this. Why are they able to make video games cooler than the Westerners? That makes no <laughs> sense. So all of those games, like Final Fight, Streets of Rage 2, they were all heavily influenced by um, those classic 80s vigilante movies, like uh, what were they? Death Wish. Warriors. And, and and... The Warriors, exactly. So that's what I wanted to bring back into the mix with Metro Siege. Not only take all the best aspects of all the beat-em-up games I ever played with my brother, but also bring back that more cinematic kind of gritty down-to-earth. You know, there's not suddenly going to be a level with space aliens or, oh, look, the oh look the president <laughs> is a cyborg. Like, you know what right. I mean? Like more down-to-earth, more cinematic feeling. I, th more I think it literally says at the start of the game Bad Dudes, it, it, it has an yeah. intro that says the president was kidnapped by ninjas. And, like, that's all mm -hmm. it says. Like, it's just one sentence. So, yeah. What more than you need? What more right. do you need for it? Yeah. <laughs> well, but, but, I mean, even that. 
even that could have been like an 80s movie, you know, just cast right. Jean-Claude Van Damme and, you know, you've got Ninja. That, no even story, that, just like 90 like, minutes yeah. of fighting, just that one bit of text exactly. at the start. But uh, even I, that, I remember, even that uh, is more believable, though, than like, like you look at, like Final Fight wasn't too bad. It got a little weird, but Streets of Rage 2, even though it's by far my favorite uh, beat-em-up game, uh, it's, it went kind of crazy. You had like... yeah cyborgs and space aliens just out of nowhere suddenly and uh, so the point is uh, i one of the things i wanted to prove with metro siege is there's another form of creativity that's not just off the wall it's like in my opinion the best poetry even is when you're working within the constraints of classical poetry you actually need meter you actually need rhyme it makes the artist care and think more about what they can do within those constraints. And it's, I think it's one of the reasons Corey and I love pixel art, but I wanted to make the ultimate beat em up game that no one's ever played before, but that like, that's kind of the whole thing with the the sort of motto or MO of Bitbeam Canon is imagine you woke up back in the eighties, but in a parallel universe where every (laughs) triple a 16 bit game was one you never saw before. So it's like they have their version of Capcom or whatever. Uh, but every, like, so do you remember that excitement when a new Capcom game came out and you bought it and brought it home and you were putting the cartridge in the console for the first time and it, you were just being wowed? You know what I mean? And it was just exciting. And we want to bring back, like, that's a problem. We have nostalgia. We We can boot up an emulator and play all these classic games, but we've seen them and played them a million times. So we wanted to create new games that feel incredibly legitimately retro, but also incredibly fresh at the same time. Looking at it as well from the demos, what we've seen, you know, you mentioned storylines and stuff. I remember Banshee had this whole thing about the inventor of the microwave and it just seemed really (laughs) kind of slapped together. But, you know, Technically, on this, um, it's, it looks beautiful, but you know, you've got a lot of stuff in here which uh, we haven't seen before in Amiga games, and uh, like moving backgrounds with the trains, and uh, you know, yep. you've got pillars in front of it. I saw a technical video that you did about the details and stuff, and mm-hmm. I guess you've got full button support as well for lots of other buttons rather than just one. Um, yeah, was it was it a real tough job, kind of getting all these things done, and uh, did plexiglass really help you out uh pixel gas pixel gas yeah uh no that would be alex brown which is enable software luckily he is just an amazing uh not only in ability and, and knowledge and skill programmer but also his level of dedication and passion for just getting it like every off the wall feature i asked for he has made happen and just if there's ever a bottleneck where he's waiting for art, he'll just do another optimization pass and say, oh, I squeezed out more memory we can now use for other stuff. Or, you know, now we can get a few more sprites or a few more colors on screen. It has been absolutely, this is the dream team. It is literally a dream come true. I've wanted to make the ultimate Omega game to show that it could have competed with Mega Drive and even Arcade back in the day. And I literally have the perfect team I'm working with to do that. And, uh, yeah, I can't wait to show you guys the uh, the overhaul that we've just done to level two. You mentioned the subway level with all the parallax scrolling. 
It's it's just upgraded considerably, and no one's seen it yet. So you guys can I be among it. the first to see it. Yeah, Corey. Well, Corey. I mean, no one outside of the team. Right. Corey is one of the dream team I mentioned. He, that that was the, a video as well, which had the technical yeah. breakdown on Amiga Bill, where you were talking yep. about how you'd actually like use the copper and stuff for the floor mm. and there was lots of different elements that were just yep. it was like demo coding or something on top absolutely. of the uh, game absolutely that's the key you can't use if you want to compete with mega drive and even arcade and make an like a side-scrolling action game with parallax you can't use the amiga kind of out of the box the way even the, the inventors of the hardware assumed you would use it, like with the dual playfield mode to get the parallax scrolling. If you just use dual playfield mode, you're going to end up with incredibly severe color limitations, uh, which are going to be very glaringly obvious compared to a Mega Drive. But you can do in later generation games on Amiga, they realized you can actually trick the Amiga to repeat its very humble amount of sprites over and over again across the screen and make that appear behind the background graphics to give yourself a back layer of scrolling. And you can even use the copper to add more colors to that. And you can slice it up to, to make it have even more line scrolling or parallax scrolling. So that's one of the many, many tricks that we do in any given Metro Siege level to add uh, more parallax because that was one of the compromises that you constantly saw on Amiga ports is just no parallax scrolling. And to me, on a side-scrolling game, it's almost sacrilege to not have layered scrolling. Like it, it's incredibly disappointing for me for a 16-bit game to just be so flat. Like everything is just moving on one plane. And uh, so, yeah, I, thankfully, uh, like I said, Alex was just up for every challenge. And uh, we've been able to just get a, you know, there's in average over 60 colors on screen, many layers of parallax, and uh, we can get up to two full-size players and four enemies on screen all at the same time, all with music and sound effects playing simultaneously, which was another all-too-common compromise, even in some AAA-quality Amiga games like uh, Blood Money. You had to choose between music and sound effects. So uh, it's interesting, actually. You um, kind of half answered our next question already. Okay. Um, so, kind of what you, you mentioned a lot of like limitations, you know, um, and challenges and stuff like that you've been faced with, and how you've had to remove, you know, certain things to then get extra space here and stuff like that. What essential elements of beat em ups did you need to kind of like keep in the game? And is, was there anything you've had, kind of had to sacrifice to get it running on the Amiga? Absolutely. Um, it wasn't specifically an Amiga limitation. It was just memory. And it's always a tug of war. When you want to get so many things into a game, you always have to make judgment calls. Well, which thing is more important? Which thing is more fun? Ultimately, that's what really matters in an action game. And the one thing I really wanted to really take this genre to another level was th there was a, a more obscure... Uh, I think it was still Capcom, correct me if I'm wrong, Corey, but uh, Knights of the Round. Yeah, uh, I think that's Capcom. Yeah, it's, Capcom. Yeah. It, it's a great beat-em-up game, and half the people that play it never learn that there's a mechanism in the game where you can actually block, and if you block just at the last second before the enemy hits you, you blink and become invulnerable, and if you press attack after that point, you do an automatic kind of more powered up attack 
I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the problem. <laughs> and I've and played that it, game through like five times. <laughs> yeah, and it's it makes the game so much cooler when you learn it. But unfortunately, like uh, Corey and I have had this uh, discussion before about ideas. Uh, when you're developing a game, there's an idea that sounds really cool. And then you get it into the game. And even if you try tweaking it and stuff, it just doesn't work out. It's The idea was cool, but it just doesn't work in reality. And then there's other ideas that are really cool ideas. You get it in. And then if you don't have a ton of time to really perfect the visual feedback, the timing, all the gameplay elements around that idea, you could have a great idea and kind of drop the ball with it or just kind of meh, you know, just like a ho-hum kind of uh, implementation of that great idea. And that was kind of the situation with Knights of the Round. Even back in the day as a teenager playing this game with my brother and discovering this, I thought, what an amazing mechanic for gameplay. But they, you could tell the designers never had the time to really make that an obvious and really rewarding aspect of the gameplay, which is part of why most people never even notice or realize or learn that you can do that in that game. So... That idea, like the things that were always the most fun to me in the beat-em-up games, not only was obviously the two-player element, but things like being able to hit hit the enemies while they're down to kind of finish them off and uh, throwing enemies into each other. And uh, also from Knights of the Round specifically, I made a tweaked and more real, fully realized version of that block and counter attack. So basically picture virtually everything you can do in Streets of Rage 2, but add on top of that multiple ways to hit enemies while they're down and uh, a block. And the way the block system works in Metro Siege is you can initiate a block at any time and you can hold it. But if you if you just keep holding it, then you're bracing and that'll reduce damage of some moves. But if someone has a baseball bat and swings at you, you're still gonna get knocked on your butt basically and still take a lot of damage. But if you time the the if you trigger the block that split second before the attack would have hit you, you'll do an automatic parry and counterattack. So you'll take no damage. You'll instantaneously do a special move. So that there's that real risk versus reward and reward to the player for getting really good at timing. We'll get back to Amiga, but first yeah. I want to talk about um, Cyberjack, and this is a kind of side-scrolling NES style game as well with. Really yep. nice parallax. Um, what what are the influences for this title? Cyberjack is the first sort of real game that we try to collaborate on with Bitbeam Cannon. Uh, before you know anybody really knew about us or anything, it was the first thing we were just sort of trying to build. It is built in Construct Three, uh, but it's made to match NES uh, specs. The inspiration is definitely sort of classic Capcom action games, that sort of thing. Um, and it was it was more Mike's idea for a premise for a game. Uh, I worked on most of the visuals, but he designed the character. And we've fleshed out the story a little bit of that universe. But we um, at the moment it was it was you know once Metro Siege and Damon Claw came into sort of full swing, we wanted to focus more in that area. But it's still there as something we want to. Uh, really get into when you know if if nes sort of stuff is something we're going to do in the future uh that would probably be the first thing we did you know 
Yeah, it was based on, even though it's got a lot of parallax, it's all based on proven techniques that later generation NES games had. So theoretically, with a good programmer and a good team, everything you see, if you look at the um, Cyberjack video on our website, theoretically, everything there is actually matching the specs and a real NES could do it. But it would just, with the caveat that it would need the same kind of helper memory swapper chip that uh, mod the later generation NES games had. Uh, but so that the, as Corey said, the real influences were things like uh, Mega Man, but also uh, Ninja Gaiden, the Ninja Gaiden trilogy on uh, Super Nintendo. I mean, not uh, regular Nintendo, not Super Nintendo, but, uh, and it, it basically just, it's always the same idea, no matter what platform we're developing for or basing, because we're just hardcore pixel artists, we like developing for retro consoles and even when we don't, because in Construct 3, we could use all 24-bit full-color graphics, we could do it all high-res, but we love the uh, the aesthetic and we love the, the extra challenge and that retro feel. So even when we make retro-style games, they're not just retro-style they're actually matching the technical constraints of some old system. So that one was based on the uh, the NES, and we were very careful with color limitations and figuring out how we would do that parallaxing. But as always, the most important thing is just gameplay, uh, you know, just overall quality and how fun is it. So that, And that's another thing that really, I think, Amiga action games usually suffered from, They'd be these amazing tech demos with amazing sound and visuals and lots of colors and parallax, but not play quite so well. Uh, which one of the one of the testaments to that is the fact that it stuck with a one button joystick for <laughs> for most of its <laughs> yeah. life. Well, and to be was enough, yeah, yeah, I was going to say to be fair on the NES. I mean, yeah, there are those classics we all remember, but there was also a sea mm -hmm. of games like that as well, which you know they they might look neat, but then you'd play it and you know <laughs> very <Yeah>. poor <laughs> mechanics or something you know could yeah. these titles be ported across to other titles as well like all the stuff that you're working on uh to other systems even yes uh there's definitely uh and not only is it a possibility it's highly likely uh we're in we've been contacted and have started communicating with a couple of very accomplished uh, developers for different systems, uh, such as Mega Drive. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we can't promise anything yet. Nothing is concrete, but it's extremely likely in the future of many, if not most of these games. Uh, obviously, Metro Siege from day one will run on classic Amigas. Any OCS or ECS Amiga with at least one meg of total RAM, it, it runs beautifully on. But it will also, from day one, be on modern systems. Uh, uh, Damon Claw is going the opposite. It's We're coming at it from the opposite direction, where we're making it in Construct for modern platforms, but then the plan is that it, the actually the engine, the code that Alex Brown is making uh, Metro Siege with is becoming what Alex Brown calls Engine 9000, which is going to be the, the foundation, hopefully, for many future uh, games on classic Amiga and modern systems. And uh, so the Amiga port of Damon Claw will actually be running on the Metro Siege engine. So, yeah, you mentioned Demon Claw there. So that's another Amiga title you're working on. What's the idea behind that then? Because that's got a completely, I wouldn't say completely different vibe to Metro Siege, but it's, you know, for me, it's kind of got like a kind of Mega Man cross with 
Demon Crest kind of vibe to it. I was going to say, yeah, with Damon Claw, uh, interestingly enough, it's, I believe, Mike, it started with a tech demo that you came up with a long time ago for Amiga, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it originally didn't have any sort of uh, premise or story. It was just a, the character in a, in a small mm-hmm. environment. And eventually we took a look at it and Mike had come up with uh, this particular fantasy universe that he had always wanted to do and had it in his mind for many years. And we liked the idea of doing this action game that was a little more in the style of sort of the classic side-scrolling action game that wasn't necessarily a platformer, but like the old, uh, you know, things like the original Rygar arcade or Altered Beast or something, you know, that wasn't, specifically more like uh, Mario or anything uh, or a, a Mega Man game, but you, you just went from one side to the other and it was more action based. And we liked that idea. Kind of the classic Castlevanias too were a little bit that way. And Mike always loved that genre as well. And we, we thought it would be neat to tie it sort of into that universe and make it in a, in a way, a sort of prehistory. And that's kind of where the story comes from. And we, we actually have recordings of us uh, that our, our our patrons have access to of of us literally fleshing out the story of this world and and everything and the entire design of it and so we we had Damon Claw has been a full on sort of uh, collaboration between the two of us uh, just yeah. you know double teaming it so uh, yeah you can uh, yep pick it up there yeah it's it started as a soulless uh, kind of graphical tech demo i wanted to prove even with amos on the amiga in a stock amiga 500 that you could get some really nice looking parallax scrolling with a lot of colors on screen uh, if you're really careful luckily i had the help of mike ness another great member of the amiga community and a very knowledgeable amos uh, programmer uh, to help me optimize it. But we got, uh, and you can actually go, if you go to our website, bitbeamcanon.com into the uh, classic systems Amiga section, you could actually download that original Damon Claw uh, Amos demo, actually load it right into Amos and see how we did it. But there's a really cool blitting trick you can do to basically fake a back layer back there uh, with some limitations, but you could do, get some really nice results. And so it started that way. And then as I was working more and more with Corey and like I showed him that demo and like, like Corey was saying, we had this idea of maybe full making it into a full game and wrap, bringing it into this eventual world or franchise of games that take place, place in this one kind of universe and world history. And then it really, the, the creativity just really exploded and it became you know, a very specific, rich story, and the uh, the gameplay actually is very heavily influenced by one of the most generic sounding and looking games you could ever see for the eight bit Sega Master System called Black Belt, which mm. was the right. uh, localization of uh, Fist of the North Star uh, from Japan. And the so the two main influences on it were Altered Beast and Black Belt. So basically, we wanted the really fast, almost rhythm action gameplay style of Black Belt with some of the creative elements of Altered Beast, like the fact, like in Altered Beast, in every level or almost every level, you get different abilities once you transform into a different animal. In Dame Call, you don't transform into a different thing like a werewolf, but you have a magic gauntlet that takes on a different form and gives you different magical abilities in each level. 
Yeah. So that's the altered beast uh, aspect of things. And then most of the gameplay is more based on black belt while removing, it's definitely more sophisticated. There's a lot more moves and a variety of enemies, but the core is that very fast rhythm action gameplay style that we think uh, most 2D games, even even before, uh, like a long time ago when uh, before the end of the 16-bit era, uh, things kind of stagnated in creativity and fell into grooves. Like every game like Castlevania suddenly had to be a Metroidvania. Yeah. And we're trying to bring back that idea of like people started, like even video game magazines and reviewers, they started directly equating how long it takes you to beat the game the first time through with the value of the game like replay value. They, they associated it as the same thing. And in my opinion, while I love Metroidvania games, especially now when I have, you know, day jobs and family and children and stuff like that, I love a game that I can pick up, play, beat the whole game, which is so much more rewarding, like r- really have a blast, beat the game in like 20 to 30 minutes. And then it, it was so fun. I might want to play that same game later that day. Whereas opposed to, yeah, like most modern games, it might take you like nine hours, 50 hours, whatever, to beat it the first time. But then the question is, how long before you want to play that game again? Never again, no doubt. Yeah, that's yeah. often that's the case. And we want to bring back that that whole, it's missing. Like there are very few games mm-hmm. now that you could just pick it up, play for, like just go through the whole thing in like a half hour and you've just had a blast. It never got boring. And later that day, you're like, I want to play it again. Like that, That's value. You know what I mean? And um, it's like, I always make the joke of grinding like, uh, Oh, it t- you know, it takes 60 hours to, be- to beat this game. Yeah. But 30 of those hours are like killing wild animals in the forest to build up your, ex- <laughs> your experience points. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. yeah. So, no, anyway. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> I've been, um, I, don't get me wrong, I love it. I've been playing Doom Eternal for like a month for half an hour a night because I, I have a daughter and, you know, she's only nine months old and it, it's it's like, I'm loving the game, but I just want to play something different now because I've been playing it for like a month. Yeah. You know, it's probably only like a 15 hour game, but you do, you miss that sense of just picking a game up, completing it within the hour. And yeah. you're like, oh, that was really fun. I'll, I'll show that to a friend, like, ne- you know, next yeah. week and we'll play it again. And you've got no, you know, kind of like qualms of doing that. Um so Demon Claw and uh, Metro Siege, I'm really excited for them. And you touched on there, like, you know, you're talking with, you know, some producers to get it to the Mega Drive and stuff like that. Are you hoping for physical releases for it? And is it, you know, are they going to be released kind of like on Xbox Live and stuff like that as well? Is that kind of the plan with it? Yeah, we're not just hoping for it. We're planning on it. And things Brilliant. certainly look like they're going in that direction. We, we certainly plan for that. You know, we're retro developers. We yeah. love it's we want our games to be something special and to be an experience. And of course there will be software downloadable versions, yeah. uh, but we want people that really want the full nostalgic uh, experience to really have something special. So uh, we're, we're planning boxed editions um, yeah. for awesome. any game we make. 
it doesn't seem we've done quite a bit of research and we have a lot of interested publishers that have contacted us going a, going a, a, a while back. So mm -hmm. there certainly doesn't seem to be any things that would stop us from doing so. Obviously, yeah. it's all going to depend on uh, the level of interest we can develop. But uh, so far, all is good. And that is the plan. And before I got into video games in my early teens, I thought for sure I was going to be a comic book artist. And I don't know, like, there's even some of my videos drawing, like designing some of the Damon Claw characters and stuff like that uh, on our YouTube channel. Um, but the the point is, like, I really have plans. Oh, and you've seen my fine art painting. So yeah. uh, the, the box arts for the game are going to be hand painted, just like the old fashioned, like really high quality uh, Capcom type boxes. And um, uh, I'm going to uh, my plan is to do the manuals, uh, the printed manuals for the game to look a lot like a classic late 80s, early 90s American comic book. Awesome. So it'll be illustrated that way. It'll look more like a comic than a regular game manual. But that, that's the plans. I'm looking forward to that. I love I love just, you know, downloading and playing a uh, retro game. Just like, like you say, what we were talking about a minute ago, just playing a retro game, hammering the achievements for a couple of hours, you know, and obviously, you know, the physical releases are always really cool. So we'll definitely keep an eye out for that. Well, Michael and Corey, it's been amazing. And uh, we've got one last question, which are, what are your future plans for Bitbean Cannon? Uh, as we touched on, we're doing everything we can to uh, make it so we don't have to do day jobs on top of Bitbean. We would love to be developing our own retro games all day, every day, um, instead of all night, every night on top <laughs> of our day jobs and every weekend. Um, but, you know, we're we're that passionate about it. Like even on top of our day jobs, even after doing, you know, a full day's work of pixel art for other people's games. And even when we need to take a break from working on our stuff, that's why we have cyber Jack to the point where it is. And the, the projects I, I, I mentioned that Corey had started sometimes even to rest my brain from working on Metro siege, instead of just vegging out and watching a TV show or a movie or playing a game, I'll, act I'll actually have this creative itch. Like I have an idea for another character or game. So we've got this amazing backlog of, uh, of other stuff, of whole other games that are waiting for us to bring to life. Yes, uh, quite a lot in, in, and yeah. in many different genres as well. So there, there are, yeah. are, you know, I, they say ideas are a dime a dozen, but I always enjoy at least taking an idea to where it's something that, is, would excite another human being, you know, uh, to where they would want to see more of it. And we've taken many ideas into those realms. Uh, obviously, we haven't shown much of that stuff yet. So we do have lots of plans for future games. Outside of that, who knows that? Well, guys, if I could have a time machine, I would put you guys in it and take you back to the Amiga heyday and we could reign supreme as kings. It's been uh, wonderful having you on the show. Thanks very much for having us on. Thanks a lot.